Hello, good morning. You're very welcome to the programme. Between now and nine, Middleton pushes back the floodwaters as farmers set out their Christmas stall. Feeding the world, food takes centre stage at the Climate Summit in Dubai. And why heritage is hardier when it comes to turkeys. It's a two pairs of socks and a woolly jumper kind of day out there this morning, folks. And as we speak, traders at the farmer's market in Middleton are setting up their stalls. Very different weather this morning to what the town was hit with in October by Storm Babette. And it is always interesting, I think, to go back to somewhere like Middleton a month or two after having had something like that visited upon them and see how it is that they are getting on. And I was especially curious to see what had happened in the agricultural hinterland of the town, especially among those growing for that farmer's market this morning. So I travelled around a few farms during the week to see had all of that excess water cleared or was it still hampering food production? This is a little electric, your TV. It's not a very strong machine, but it does my job nicely. It's very handy for patting around the field. Obviously, we're worried about carbon footprint as well. The water still lying on the field is not making things easy. But Dave Barry has an advantage over those using heavy machinery. He is picking by hand. Why have you so many carrots left on the ground here? Well, that was the rain, no. So we just have, like I said, it's making more difficult to pick, yeah. That's just rotting down off them. Yeah. You know. Oh, there's nothing like the smell of rotting carrots <laughs> in this world, is there? Oh, my God. <laughs> but, uh, but you've lost... I mean, you're not talking about just a few. You're talking about 30, 40 carrots every square metre there. I know, yeah, I accept that, but sure, that's the way, that's, that's the joys of it. People, that's another thing people don't realise, like, how much waste you have in your field. This is a cold room, there's just some carrots, onions, swedes, purple sprouting broccoli. Will all that be sold this weekend? No, I might have too much carrots here now because we were picking a little bit a bed and I said we'd finish it off because it was a good dry day. It could be pouring rain next week and we are trying to pick it like, and the, the ground will only get wetter. It, was, it wasn't too bad, so we picked... How long have you been doing this? 56 or 57 years. Mm. Do you think the weather is getting more unpredictable in that time? I think so, yeah. We are getting caught with dry periods. Like I had to set up a little a small irrigation system, but like, I, mean, I never had to do that years ago, you know. So those periods of drought are getting a little bit longer, a little bit harder yeah. to deal with, and then you have this massive surplus of water. It is tricky, yeah, but like I said, I'm on a small scale, so like I'm only pulling a little digger to dig out a few carrots and parsnips. I'm not pulling big machinery, and most of it is, is hand work, you see. We're just picking by hand. You know, just pick by hand. You can't, people don't pick by hand anymore, mm. you know. It's just not a... Financially, you can't make a wage, you see. Do you know what I love about this time of morning is the rising mist. Yeah, the rising of the mist. I know you expect to see a deer or someone popping out of the woods. It's kind of like the woods throwing off its blanket in the morning, isn't it? Unveiling herself for the day. 
Helena Smith has stepped back from producing for the farmer's market this season while she figures out if there is a living to be made from it any longer. It's really, really disappointing. We've really gotten to the stage where we're kind of like have to rethink everything. And we had a beautiful, flourishing business up until before COVID. And when we came back, I said, we kept with us and we kept with us. And then we were like, just can't compete anymore with 29 cents for a bunch of carrots. It's a shame because it's putting a load of small growers, um, turning a load of small growers away from the business of actually growing. But Helena, that's been something that's going to be going on for 30, 40 years. Why would the two years of COVID accelerate it like that? Okay, so during COVID, Middleton Market was amazing. It stayed open. And we had a surge in people coming to the market and buying food. It was a social outlet. Mm -hmm. People came every week. Something to do. Then things go back to normal. And you could see customer base declining a small little bit. And now I think, like, if you we turn on the news, we turn on the radio, people are just being continuously sabotaged with so many different things going on in the world right now. I think food is just becoming secondary and people are trying to cut the costs with everyday living and it seems to be food is where people see that 29 cents to pay for a bunch of carrots seems to be okay. And even ourselves this year, we haven't grown food this year. And I must tell you, like this year I am hungry, tired, and I can't wait to start the growing season next year and just go for ourselves. Whether our future is, we'll always grow food, but whether our future is that we now just grow food for ourselves, it looks like that's where we're headed. The bread shed. What else were you going to call us? <laughs> yeah, we're out in the bread shed uh, at the moment. You can see this is a container where magic happens. So we make lots and lots of bread, sourdough breads, yeast breads, rye breads, etc., etc. And for these the are for the market and uh, for the little farm shop here. Uh, 20 minutes the, uh, down the road, bread is being made in Ballymaloo Cookery School for this morning's market. Darina Allen is one of the people behind the 23-year-old Middleton Market and the whole farmer's market movement. Where did the idea for the farmer's market come from? (laughs) Actually, the first farmer's market I ever saw was in San Francisco. I went over to visit a friend of mine over there and I remember arriving in quite late one night and she said to me, we won't stay up late because I want to show you the farmer's market. And there, she was like, this was a light bulb moment for me because I came home and told Myrtle about it. She was also very excited about the idea. And we started the first farmer's market with five or six other people in the Coal Quay in Cork, where there'd always been a market for over 400 years. Mm-hmm. But I've been involved in various bits and pieces. But honestly, the thing I'm most proud of, if you were to ask me, is really being instrumental with several other people in starting the farmer's market movement in Ireland. Because so many farmers have said to me, Uh, that they would no longer be on the land, particularly smaller farmers, if it wasn't for the farmer's market, being able to sell directly to the producer and also getting the pat on the back uh, for actually producing uh, food of that quality and so on. 23 years later, the farmer's market in Middleton is still going on a Saturday morning. But that does not mean that it is all plain sailing by any means. Oh, really? Do you think so? People are finding 
unfortunately, the discounters are just a little bit too keenly priced by comparison with the farmers' markets. Well, it's really, really difficult because most people in their busy lives are not connected to how food is produced. They have no idea how much effort and energy and time goes into producing something. And at the moment, you can buy a bunch of carrots, for example, for maybe... 29, 30 cents. Those carrots are at least three months from the time the seed is sown until they're harvested. How on earth could you produce nourishing, wholesome food for that price? Or can you must remember that if that's the price on the supermarket shelf, the, the farmer is lucky to get a third of that. It can't be done. So if we want this kind of food, it's nourishing, wholesome, nutrient-dense, we've got to support them. If we don't support them, they'll be gone. As far as I'm concerned, they're heroes. Yeah, well, I suppose, like, we're, like, I suppose we have a lot of, we've inside and outside growing areas, a lot of polytunnels. Will the Middleton market endure? Well, as Helena Smith reminded me, it has got what Cork people consider to be Cork's greatest asset. Cork people. Polytunnels work really well here because you have that um, sense of control over the water. The good thing about East Cork is we have good soil, good people, good water. (laughs) <laughs> so it makes it makes for a good place to grow food. Sure, if only the whole country could be Cork. <laughs> but sure, yeah. How do you know somebody's from Cork? They'll tell you. Yeah. <laughs> and she's not even from Cork. She's a Limerick woman. Helena Smith. We'll have more from Middleton a little bit later on in the programme. You have by now no doubt seen the UN Global Climate Summit. COP is underway in Dubai and you've probably also seen the controversy over the United Arab Arab Emirates using its presidency of the summit as an opportunity to sell oil. So this is unlikely to be the COP that will see fossil fuels exit the stage. But it is the summit at which growing food in a time of climate crisis has for the first time gotten pretty close to centre stage. Tom Arnold is better placed than most people to assess what is happening here. An agricultural economist with a foot in the development camp since his time as chairman of Concern Worldwide and a foot in farming, having worked in the Department of Agriculture and more recently as chair of the Food Vision 2030 group. Good morning, Tom. How are you? Very well. Big picture question before we get lost in the weeds of COP first off. The next three decades are going to be humankind's stiffest challenge. Mm. Feeding everybody as the population hits Mm. 10 billion. Will we feed everybody or is that only a question that we can answer in 2050? Well, I think the record is that we we are successful in feeding people. If you look at since 1970, the population of the world has increased by two and a half fold. And yet the percentage of the world's population that are hungry has has decreased consistently. So that's the longer term context. But the climate scientists the climate tell us that by, by 2070, 19% of places that are currently inhabited are going to be unlivable and many of them uncultivatable. Yeah, yeah that's the big uncertainty in the future because I think if, if we didn't have climate change and its potential impact, there there wouldn't be any great difficulty in feeding a growing population. But we do now have to take account of two factors. We need to feed a growing population, which might reach close to 10 billion by 2050, and yet we have to meet another crucial climate target, reducing the temperature rise to less than 1.5%. 1.5 degrees. Yeah. 
Um, how is the COP addressing this? Well, it's addressing it by very directly the, the fact that, as you said, this is the very first COP since ni- 1995 that the issue of food and climate taken together is is on the table. And it's put on the table by the UAE presidency. It made it clear at the, in Egypt last year that this, they wanted this issue to be centre stage. And they have worked very hard, I have to say, in the meantime. And this morning, uh, the Taoiseach will announce that Ireland will sign up to what's called the Emirates Declaration on Resilient Food Systems, Sustainable Agriculture and Climate Action. Now, that's a very big shift for the COP. And what it means in practice, if I may quote, uh, it means a commitment to expedite the integration of food systems and agriculture into climate action programmes and to mainstream climate action uh, across policy agendas relating to food systems and agriculture. Okay. That's, that's, a li- that's a little bit of a word soup. And I'd imagine yeah. that there are farmers sitting at home now thinking, oh God, what is this going to mean for me now? Does this translate, do you think, into something that has to be changed in our climate action plan? Or are we already abreast of this Emirates declaration? I think we're already largely abreast of it because we have two significant national policies. One is the Climate Action Plan of 2023. The other is Food Vision 2030. Taken together, if we implement them, we'll be in line with this Emirates declaration. But the critical thing is that notwithstanding the words words smithing over this uh, the key thing is that 134 countries at COP have signed up to this Emirates declaration mm-hmm. now that is a really big deal by comparison to the fact that before we weren't even talking about the issue there is one key word in what you just said there if if we implement everything that we have set out for ourselves in food vision 2030 and our climate action plan how do you think we're doing there I think we're we're making progress and we need to make more progress and we need to be very clear that it's in our own national self-interest that we do this and I think we're we're on the way to doing it. Uh, And if we can do that, we will really have the credibility to be a leader in this field because I see this progress at COP28 as purely a starting point. Uh, we, the international community is going to have to build on this and I think it's it's, imp- yeah. it's going to build on it through the fact that in two years time Brazil hold will, the next the COP30 will be held in Brazil and Brazil are committed to, to very much to this agenda the, Back to feeding the world um, the other big thing that has happened at this COP they have agreed a loss and damage fund uh, that is to be used specifically for compensation after extreme weather events. Is this good news for feeding people whose harvests get lost to cyclones or storms or droughts? I think this fund will be very much connected to this issue because most of these countries are still largely dependent on agriculture and hugely affected by the the, 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 the climate facts, the, the, the cyclones, etc. So this fund is really, I think, important. Uh, it seems to have got more traction than maybe were, was expected. 
I think it's important to recognise that Ireland has played a key role in setting get setting up this fund. Damon Ryan was central to the negotiations both last year and this year to get it over the line. And it would it would should also be said, I think that uh, Mary Robinson, in her advocacy of of climate justice over the last uh, fifteen years, that sort of thinking has underpinned mm. uh, the establishment of this fund. So I think this is a good a good news story already coming out of COP. Do the COPs force us to try and hold two different ideas in our head at the same time? One, that they don't work when it comes to doing things like setting dates for phasing out fossil fuels. But two, that they do make very big leap forwards on things like compensation, loss and damage. Because two years ago at the Glasgow COP, there was no way the world's leaders were signing up to a loss and damage fund. And now here we have one. Well, well, the record of COP has, in terms of delivery of really decisive results, hasn't been good. Uh, it's, it's, it's 2009 since this idea of uh, a loss and damage fund was put on the table. It's only now being delivered. But it has been delivered. And maybe the maybe it is dawning on people because from their ordinary uh, observance of, of extreme weather events, the climate problem is getting worse and more decisive action has to be taken. And I hope that 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 will translate into maybe more decisive action here. But the most, at this COP, but I think the most important thing from a a food and agriculture point of view is that a direction has now been set, which I think has the potential to be built upon in coming years. We heard in the news headlines there that Ireland is contributing £225 million in climate finance. The Taoiseach is going to announce money above and beyond that to go into the loss and damage fund later on today. This all, to most people, I would say, sounds like quite a considerable amount of money when they're in the middle of a cost of living crisis here. What would you say to anybody asking that question are the advantages of helping the people of, take a region like sub-Saharan Africa, to feed themselves at home, in their own homes. Sub-Saharan Africa is faced with huge problems uh, to to get economies going again. Um, agriculture, securing agriculture and rural development has to be central to that. And I think something like this fund, as part of a wider approach to helping uh, sub-Saharan Africa, is key. And it's key for reasons of self-interest as well. Because I think if we don't... Self-interest for Ireland. Self-interest for Ireland and Europe. Because if we don't uh, enable Africa to grow, to have economies which can keep their own people at home, I'm afraid there will be, uh, over the next 30 years, the migration problem will intensify. This is something that spills into the Mediterranean or the boats in the Mediterranean. It doesn't necessarily just stay at home. Yes. Okay. Tom Arnold, thank you very much for that assessment. You're off to Dubai, are you? Week for as part of the uh, official Irish delegation for, for the meeting in very Dubai. Good. Well, yeah. we might talk to you when you come back from okay, that. Thank Tom, thank you very much. So, from feeding the world to putting Turkey on the table after the break. Email countrywide at rte.ie. Countrywide on RTE Radio 1. So where will your turkey and ham come from this Christmas? Well, we happen to know that Darina Allen, who you heard from earlier on, will be getting some of her turkeys for Ballymaloo from Fear Via Farm in County Leash. Brendan Guinan's enterprise is nothing if not diverse. 
pigs to tree plantations, mostly trees on his farm, in fact. But when Anne-Marie Kelly visited him for Countrywide, she talked to him about the heritage turkeys first that he is rearing for this year's Christmas dinner table. Why a heritage breed? Well, it's all about those cold Midlands morning like this morning. They're the old black turkeys. The reason I go with heritage breed is because they're actually able to handle the weather outside. The white ones, which are the kind of faster growing ones, that the, um, the more modern ones, I suppose, they grow way quicker, but they're not able for the weather at this time of year. They'd actually die uh, if they were out in the forest at this time of year. So the texture of the meat then, compared to the white ones, Yes. what's that? Well, the meat itself is slightly darker first. It's not really white meat. It's actually got structure to it. It's got consistency to it because of all the ex extra exercise. The darkness to the meat comes from increased blood flow. The blood flow comes from exercise, from wandering around through, through the paddocks. That gives you the flavour then as well. So with these turkeys, you have to cook them uh, low and slow because other than that, they'd be very tough. Are you conscious of every single part of your farm? Do you put so much thought into all of it? Because you, your approach is very different. Yes, I can sell turkeys at the end of the, this season, but what they leave behind actually enhances the health of the forest. Same with the hens, same with the meat chickens, with the cattle, the pigs. They all enhance the health of the forest and they're all end hosts to each other's pathogens. It means it's a true diverse ecosystem. No animals here get any antibiotics, any artificial minerals or vitamins, they get it all from the forest and what they eat in the forest. And it's not a huge farm. How many acres is it? Of 26 acres of deciduous forest and then uh, we have some pine and then a little bit of bog and Kulamona bog at, at the back. Um, so it's very small. It is sustaining my family, which there will be five kids. My wife is a full-time mother. This is our only income. Like it's a very, very simple system. We little or no machinery. Uh, we don't spend any chemical fertilizer. Like we actually sequester carbon using the animals and enhance the health of the forest. Where, where does all this come from? I was raised in this type of food, and it was really healthy. It was um, we'd raw milk. We had all our own vegetables. That all came from my grandmother. She was the founding member of the Irish Country Markets back after the war, and uh, she raised me, I suppose. She had her turkeys, she had hens, she had a perennial and an annual garden. And all that then was used to sell through the country markets. She had to farm without chemicals, she had to farm without antibiotics. They're saying now it's impossible, but it actually is possible if you change, actually look to the past to see how things were done. But you then didn't become a farmer. You, you had your own business. So only a couple of years ago, you were a haulier. Yes, yeah, hazardous waste haulage. You had lots of lorries and people 12, working for you? 12 Arctics, 18 people working at the height of it. Success? Serious pressure, you know. Well, obviously, the haulage company wasn't making you happy. Not at all, no, no, no. It, it, it was just too much pressure. It was too much pressure on the family. I, I was never at home. I, I needed to spend more time at home. I needed to, uh, like, I was burnt out. Yeah. That's the best way of putting it, you know. Nearby, we pay a visit to the four-month-old piglets in their paddock. They're eating potatoes now, so there's spuds in there. And what else is in there now? Again, the barley, oats and beans is their main 
um, con concentrate or but I don't give them a huge amount either because you feed them too much they won't root and I want them to root I want them to I, I want them to grow slowly describe this paddock then this is their winter and pad it's a bed of wood chip I put in and then we add hay straw waste silage into it they build up that all the way through through the winter they root through it as well so they help compost all the and break down the wood chip and then when they taken out of there in spring and put back out onto the land I have a rich deep mulch that has been turned all winter by the pigs and it also is inoculated with the pigs waste as well I plant potatoes into that then for the summer and potatoes grow I don't and get it yes natural fertilizer there's about three feet in the pad next spring Within two years, that has broken down to about six inches of rich organic topsoil that you can grow any vegetable you want to. And is that from your grandmother again? Yeah, she would have done a lot of um, composting because she had to. That was the only fertilizer they had. Basic knowledge is from grandmother and then they're really, really enhanced because all a pig wants to do is root. So they're mixing and rooting for me. So it saves me having to do that, say, in a normal so composting system. they're turning over the soil like worms almost. Exactly, yes. Yeah. And then these hams go to Ballymaloo and Ashford uh, well, Castle and... We what? have over 400 customers that we, uh, which are families that we deliver to regularly all through the year. And then uh, we supply turkeys to Doreen Allen and Ballymaloo. And then we supply a wide range of stuff to Ashford Castle. We do have an open farm as well. So we've lots of schools, lots of... Um, colleges, UCD, send down uh, ag students to me during the summer. Is that your goal, Brendan, is to educate? Education is the number one because this is possible. Like the, It's a farm like this. It's a different system, but it actually works. It's successful and it's very, very rewarding for both the animals and the farmer and the land. Each animal that has been on this farm has left a positive impact behind they have built organic matter, they have enhanced the health of the trees, the life of, of our animals when they go to the butcher. It doesn't end, it continues through the nutrient density of our meats, it continues through in the organic matter that's left, left in the forest. And you can actually feel that in the forest when you come in. There's a positive energy here. And that is from every animal that has ever been on the forest, leaving their mark behind. Did you ever think that, you know, when you were doing your haulage, that you'd be here, <laughs> that you'd be sending off these pigs to the likes of Ashford Castle and Ballymaloo and being an educator? Do you ever think? The short answer is probably yes. Now, maybe not Ashford Castle and Ballymaloo, but supplying families with nutrient-dense food, that was my goal from the very beginning. And now that I prove this concept has worked, it is to sing from the rooftops and get as many farmers on board and get as many farmers who are interested in doing things a little bit differently in harmony with nature. Don't have nature in a corner of your, of your farm. Have nature incorporated in the heart of your farm. So how will you spend your Christmas day? We'll have our own sweet cured, dry cured ham. We'll have our, our own turkey. We'll have our own vegetables. We've five kids. Our eldest are in college now, so it'll be a privilege to have everybody back together at the table. It really shows how grateful we are to be where we are and, and everybody's fit, everybody's healthy. What more do you want?
Brendan Guinan talking to Anne-Marie Kelly. More details at Fear Via Farm, F-I-O-R-B-H-I-A, fearviafarm.ie. So how is Middleton County Cork getting on after Storm Babette? Well, you are listening to another way of answering that question. One of the other things that I came across while I was there during the week was the combined members of the Middleton Concert Band coming together to rehearse for their Christmas concert tomorrow. PM Middleton GAA Hall and if that many people can come together to make music well that tells you something about how resilient Middleton is. Down at the other end of the main street they are getting the farmers market stalls set up and ready to go on what must be a pretty cold December morning. I'm going to speak to a few traders now first among them Annie Murphy from Annie's Roast. Good morning Annie. Good morning. How are you keeping? Oh, I can practically smell those sausages. I know. I have customers waiting for them to cook. Oh, you tease. it's so cold and crisp (laughs) this morning. Everyone is out. Are you getting the Christmas vibe because the lights are up and down the main street or are you just too busy for that kind of romantic nonsense? Well, wait till I tell you. There is two little kids just walking up here towards me in Santa suits. The most adorable little kids you've ever seen. About four years of age and they all dressed up in their Santa suits. So yes, Christmas is well and truly on in Middleton. Is the market, Annie, um, a happier way of working for you? Is it a lifestyle choice or is it something that actually financially is worth your while? Well, it's a lifestyle choice for me. I just love being out in the fresh air, meeting people. Um, My customers are amazing. You know, I have customers from two years of age to 90 years of age. It's just a fantastic place. Let me speak to one of your customers. John McNamara, good morning. How are you doing? Oh, Christ, you're after catching me at a bad time. I'm in the queue for the fish here. And if I let my place go... Do you want to talk to me now? I I do want to talk to you now, John. John, take me on your virtual tour around the stall because you are a regular at Middleton Market. Where do you go? Who do you talk to? We're coming here a long time. I was listening to you on the radio earlier and Zarina was saying 23 years. 25 years we used to be across the road here. I started coming down with my mother-in-law. Can you believe it? Coming to the market as soon as the morning with the mother-in-law. So we come in, and I'll mention no names, no Philip, because otherwise I'll be in trouble. We get the brain. Well, you've just corrected Darina Allen, so you're already in trouble. Oh, shit. Oh, no, but if I mention Darina, we have to mention Frank. <laughs> you know Frank Hitterman? I got him going. He's now on the international market because I encouraged him. He's a great product. So wait a minute, no. We get the apples. 
we get the pork. You had Dave Barry on earlier, and he got grand carrot. If I mention anyone, though, I'll be in trouble. So, like, we, we come down, to be honest. We do, we do our shopping here, and then, in the, from the point of view, we do all our shopping then uptown, or we go into the local super value or whatever. It draws its own, and we stay here and get the stuff, and we're coming a long time, and we're delighted. And to be honest, I love the connection with, with the people that are growing it. Like, we're all on about, you know, why are we losing butchers and why are we losing small shops? And then in the next breath, we're not supporting them. So unless we're buying off, we sure they won't be there. So you leave well-fed, but you're leaving with that kind of ever-so-slightly smug glow on the inside of knowing that you've helped somebody stay in business. And 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 it's tasty. Like, I come down for the... I'll have the breakfast here off of a couple of stalls. You know what I mean? So maybe my wife would be would be doing more of the shopping and I'd be maybe more going around doing the guff and talking to the lads in the fish, <laughs> talking to the lads in the fish stall or something. And and you know you know Philip, you know what it's like? It's like long ago we went up the village and you had a chat with the, the butcher and we go downtown and have a chat here with the butcher Frank Murphy and you come along that you have a chat with Willie who you were buying spuds off of and you have that connection to the local community, even though I want to put on this as a marker, no more than Helene earlier, I'm a clear man. If it wasn't for the likes of us immigrants supporting the East Cork people, where would they be? They better appreciate us. <laughs> well, you're more Cork than Cork itself at this stage, John. You mentioned Frank Hederman there. Let me talk to Frank now. Very good morning. How are you doing, Frank? Good God, I just tell Matt tomorrow now that he keeps that guff up. <laughs> Frank, your smoked salmon is a, a premium product. String of prestigious yeah. awards to your name. 40 years in business. Why stand out in the cold on a Saturday morning? Am I there? <laughs> have you outsourced that, have you? I've subcontracted it to my 16-year-old daughter, Beatrice, who's probably putting up the stall, with Tom O'Leary, who's 18, doing architecture, and my darling Dan ceremony who's helping them all put it together. I will go down in a civilised time after I've had the eggs <laughs> and I'll get on with life. Very good. Delegation at the heart of good management of any yes. enterprise. You've answered a question for me there though and that is about the involvement of the next generation and getting your successors on board. Are you hopeful yep. on that front? It, it, it is unfortunately um, I've been riffing about this a little bit lately. I am concerned about the second generation, whether they whether they have the F, the energy to put up with what their parents put up with. It's a very simple fact. Um, it, it takes an awful lot out of you. You know, you do this thing for 40 years. And I'm just not talking just about markets, which are vitally important. And we were involved in setting up markets all over the country from the 90s on. But indeed, from... Um, one, I have four children, Beatrice and my second daughter, Kesha, who's in TV. Um, is, uh, they're, they're probables. I wouldn't say... Um, Not definites, but probables. probables, okay. But you see, they, they, they have their own life. Children have their own life. You know, they, don't, they, they might look at you and say, well, you know, do I really want to put all that in? And they're not doing their job properly, Frank, if they don't rebel against what mum and dad do, do they? Let me bring in at this point Barry Tyner, chair of Middleton Market. Barry, good morning. How are you? 
Good morning, Philip. All going good here, man. Uh, everybody's putting on a very brave and determined face now two months after Storm Babette. But this week I heard some voices wondering out loud how much longer they would be able to keep going with Middleton Market. Are you optimistic? Oh, absolutely. We've, we've been through uh, the downs and the ups over the last over 20 years. Like the market, you're asking there, John, about stalls. You're talking about over 30, 35 stalls, all different business, rich, diverse offerings, primary producers. So you're talking about the growers themselves, the bakers themselves, the people who are actually making the food and connected to the land. Those things happen. They can adapt. It's a very resilient system. And the original 11 stallholders that started way back, nine of them are still here. And now their kids are involved as well. So it's a very resilient model. But Barry, make your, to the food system. make your pitch then to the person who was thinking this morning about going and buying the 29 cent bunch of carrots that we heard so much about earlier on in the programme. Tell them why they should be going to Middleton Farmers Market instead. Well, first of all, if they're buying carrots for that much, they're going to get what they pay for. But uh, second of all, food costs money. It's, 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 uh, it, 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 food, food costs money, but you're buying more than that. You're buying a connection to the food itself. You're, you're buying into a whole system that when, when the chips are down, just say the, the, with the logistic uh, problems there a couple of years ago, we weren't affected at all. We had chicken, we had everything going, all the veg available. You're buying into that, a resilient system that will be around for a good while. Cheap food comes at a very high cost. You had stuff there on about COP and all that. The vast majority of all that problems there is that you're transport needlessly transporting food around the world instead of actually producing where you can. This country could produce anything it wants, besides perhaps maybe uh, grapevines and stuff like that. But all the stuff we need in terms of veg and and uh, meats and all the different uh, cheese and all that, we have it all here. Very and. Good. Uh, you know, we want to invest in that to make sure it's around tomorrow. That's now, the only vote we have is really our money, and we've got to spend it right. John McNamara, are you anywhere near the top of that fish queue yet? The course of blazes on you, Philip. There was, I had my eye and two John Dorys, and the next thing, by the time you interrupted me, weren't they gone? And John Dory off of the fish stall here are superb because they're so fresh. They were probably somewhere back in school yesterday at the crater. And now they'll be on. Well, they won't All be right. on my plate. And, 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 my and plate. the fact that they're gone has nothing to do with you blathering too much. It's my fault, is it? No, no, Philip. Who rang who? Here now, let's get this right. You <laughs> rang me. And I, I being polite, said I'd step away from the fish stall. <laughs> Philip, if you're ever down, you owe me two. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm a marked I man. I'm a marked man. For me. All right, John McDamara, Frank Hederman, Annie Murphy, Barry Tyner, thank you all very much. So from the bustle and the blather of Farmer's Market in Middleton County Cork to the quiet, frosty landscape of Longford. John Connell's wife, Viv, gave birth to their son, Ted, earlier on this year. And as he walks the fields at morning time, John looks forward to their first Christmas with their young son. Walking out to see the sheep this morning, I moved through the frosty fields of Esker, crisp and white and pure. I walked and watched as my breath rolled forth. There was a newness to everything that said winter was here. At home my son and wife are having breakfast and will no doubt want to hear how the animals are getting on. It's truly winter now, yes, 
but also something more. There is the coming joy of Christmas, and tomorrow at Mass they will light the first candle of Advent. Ted, my son, has been this side of the womb for nine months now. He is getting bigger each day, finding new ways to crawl and walk and eat. But this is his first Christmas. That fact has stirred in me the memories of my own Christmases. At school the books would be put away and we would all take to learning lines for the school play, becoming our own heroes and villains, whether in the nativity play or a one-act comedy, all guided under the hand of the old master. As the day approached, there would be letter-writing to Santy and the erecting of the Christmas tree. On the farm, winter calving would be in full swing and there would be new life everywhere, from a wild limousine to a dopey simmental calf. Perhaps the memories that stick best are the simplest ones. Going to confession on Christmas Eve in Longford Cathedral, lighting our candles for those now gone, and seeing the manger in the church. There were sheep there too in that manger, waiting for the arrival of the Great Shepherd. My Vietnamese-Australian wife has her own memories. Midnight Mass celebrated in a big public park in the warm summer air, and each person bringing a lighted candle. A Christmas Day family barbecue in the backyard with prawns and lamb and card games and beers and maybe a song or two. This Christmas, our first as a little family, is a time for new rituals. It would be my turn now to bring us to confession, to light the warm turf fire from last summer's hard work and to put on the good clothes. We will remember Australia as we go to midnight mass and light a candle, though it won't be in the open air. And as to the card games... Well, it just so happens my family love them too, so we will play 25 or old maid. It's not Australia, but it's something. Walking through the frosty field now, I think of all my little jobs that I must do to be ready for Christmas. A tree will be needed to be felled, a new set of clothes for Christmas morning mass, and my rounds will need to be done on the family with gifts and chocolates for all. The Spiritus Mundi was everywhere as I walked among the sheep this morning. They spoke to me in their own quiet way that this time should be treasured, should be adored. I thought of Ted. I thought of my Aunt Breege, who passed this week, and the grace she had. I walked and walked through those white fields and the gentle sheep that occupied them and thought that there is grace for all who look, there is grace for all who listen. Christmas is on its way. Of that we can be certain. Happy Christmas, Ted Connell, and happy Christmas, everyone. That is all that we have time for. Dave Gibson, wash the muck off the spuds. Amandine Passo-Devine, check them for black spot. Eileen Heron, of course, manages the stall. Sinead Mooney's on the way with playback. Ears the ground on the telly on Thursday. Do not forget. And the rest of your day lies ahead, people. Go have some fun with it. Bye-bye. Countrywide on RTE Radio 1. Listen back on the RTE Radio Player.